0: Hi, everybody. This is Reed, and we hope that your new year is off to a really great start. Now, Nathan and I are still on a bit of a break. We will be returning in February with brand new conversations and brand new episodes. But meanwhile, we're so excited for the release of the upcoming M. Night Shyamalan thriller Glass, which is a sequel to his films Unbreakable and Split. And we thought it might be kind of fun to take a look back at early 2017 when we did a five-episode series on M. Night Shyamalan's work called Springtime for Shyamalan. We covered Split, The Visit, The Village, Signs, and The Sixth Sense. Now, all of those episodes, the full episodes, are still in the feed. If you want to go back and check those out, we would certainly encourage that. But what we have for you here is a sampling of some of the highlights from those episodes. We talked a lot about Shyamalan's career as a whole, touched on the highlights and the lowlights, if you want to call it that. We talked about the hits and the duds. We talked about the cameos. We talked about the scripts. We talked about the ups and downs. And, of course, we had long conversations about those five films. So it was a really fun series, and we still look back on it very fondly as one of our very favorite series that we've ever done. So we present them to you here now in a little greatest hits kind of collection that we hope you will enjoy. And then at the very end, there is a little bonus tacked on, a 15-20 minute bonus of some listener feedback that we had received on the work of M. Night Shyamalan that uh, came after we had recorded the series. So kick back, uh, relax, and here is a sampling of some of our favorite moments from the springtime for Shyamalan series and once again we will be eagerly anticipating returning to you in your feeds with brand new conversations brand new films brand new stories in February of this year so take a listen and we will see you then bye-bye
1: And we have to fear him, fear himself. No, be afraid, be very afraid There's nothing to fear except God Whatever that means to you
0: You're listening to The Fear of God, a podcast exploring the intersection between Christianity and the horror genre. Uh, the reason we are so excited for this week, Nathan, do you want to tell them what this week begins, which they probably already ha- have a hint of if uh, they looked at their episode <laughs> title before listening.
2: Uh, yeah, today we are starting hashtag springtime for Shyamalan, Shyamalan Shyamala. However, we're- it is Shyamalan. I okay. looked it
0: up. It is Shyamalan. I've been saying it wrong. I always pronounce the little Y in it. The Shyamalan. I always just put that little thing. It. But no, it's Shyamalan.
2: I think this episode we should just like just keep saying it different ways. Like every time. You yeah, just-
0: Shyamalan ding dong. Shyamalan. Show mama.
2: na It's like a, it's like a, a fear of God exclusive. We're going to speak in tongues on, uh, uh-uh. <laughs> and the
0: listeners just exited out. All
2: right. Yes. So tonight we begin today, whenever it is you're listening to this episode is when you are with us beginning the very exciting journey that we have lovingly dubbed springtime for Shamalan. Um, and we're going to run down five of Mr Knight's films uh this particular episode um again, as Reed mentioned, if you saw this on your playlist or however you consume these, we are talking about split today uh the most mm-hmm. recent entry in mr m's ouvre yes so reed we we're talking about split today before we get to split, like any other. Any other pieces of media you want to recommend? You've been consuming.
0: Um, at the moment, to be honest with you, I've just been watching a lot of M. Night Shyamalan. Yeah, and I'm I'm not like I I wanted to reacquaint myself with all twelve of his directorial efforts before we sort of dove into this. So recently, it's just been all Shyamalan all the time, which is not a bad thing for me. I know, I know. Already, some of our listeners are like, "Oh, good lord, we're gonna have five weeks of talking about this direct because he's kind of a divisive." Uh, personality in terms of not him, you know, being contentious, but his films, they're polarizing. There are people who just spit a lot of bile against him, but
2: let's talk. Can we talk about that for a minute? Sure. Yeah. I want can to do that. It's let's, appropriate up, let's time. Because, because I've been thinking about that, you know, I was, um, uh, as I occasionally do, listening to some of our more recent episodes just as they hit the air, uh, making sure I don't sound like too much of an idiot, which is, you know, easy for me to make happen. Um, <laughs> but, you know you you've you've beat the drum several times of his supposed divisiveness and i don't disagree with you about some of his films some of his works and i i suppose i sort of understand maybe even him as a filmmaker you know he he had been known for increasingly more recognizably placing himself in his movies in ways that may sort of pull you out, you know, which I know from, or what I imagine from his standpoint is this sort of Hitchcockian homage, um, which, which I get. And I, on the whole, never really had a problem with that. To me, as I interpret the divisiveness you're referencing, is what you are saying, that's a question, is what you are saying that specifically just some of the movies, or like, for instance, even... You know, let's just go with what is pretty universally acclaimed. Six sins. Like, would you say, oh, Six sins has its has its haters? I mean, like, what are you referring to when you specifically state the divisive nature of Shyamalan? Shyamalan.
1: Shamalan. Oh, <laughs>
0: so, <laughs> Shyamalan. Um. Here. So. So. Here's what I'm kind of scratching at. Or here's what I'm. Uh, what my experience of talking about him is. People, if people don't like Spielberg's works, or if they don't like a few of his dud films. Uh, in general, people, nobody will be sitting around going like, oh yeah, that hack Spielberg doesn't know what he's doing, you know? If people don't like Nolan, which I don't know very many people who don't like Christopher Nolan, but if people don't like Nolan, they at least acknowledge the artistry, the craft of it. Um, there is something very bizarre when you bring up M. Night Shyamalan's films if the person you're speaking to is not a fan. There's something very bizarre that happens in the conversation. To me, usually when I talk to my friends, if they do not care for him, uh, as a filmmaker, there's this odd sort of bile that, that creeps up. And I think it's because he has a lot of devotees. And I think that part of it is simply that the people like myself, who are really big fans of his, that when he's very praised, there may be a tendency on their part to want to sort of, uh, back against that and, and counter it with equal amounts of distaste or dislike. But the other odd sort of thing that happens is I feel like critical assessment towards him is not always terribly fair. So when I talk about the divisiveness of him as a filmmaker, I always think about my encounters with my friends who don't particularly care for him. We have a couple of them who are listeners of this show who are like, yeah, we'll see you in six weeks or whatever. I mean, they, they, they assured me, those that I interacted with, that they would listen to these episodes. So thank you for listening, Blake. And whoever else you are. Um, but they, um, they assured me that they would be listening. But most of the time when I have conversations with them, they'll roll their eyes. They're like, Oh, Shyamalan. Good grief. This guy. And, uh, and I don't quite understand where all of that comes from. Maybe, uh, people who don't care for his work can illuminate that to me. But what I think more on an objective level is I think that critics in general are harsher to his films when he missteps when he does sure. really well yeah, yeah, yeah. then he uh then he's praised appropriately but i feel like and and we'll get into this when we start talking about a couple of specifics cuz he's made a couple of films that absolutely do deserve to be sort of taken to task but i think he has made a few films that i think are unfairly dismissed and unfairly trashed down
2: but don't you think like and 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 this is you know more just sort of curiosity. I mean, for better or worse, and at varying points of his career, he might say worse for better or worse. He became the director who twisted the ending. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's part of it. And I, I, well, I think that's a large part of it because it creates this expectation on the audience's part of grandiosity. You know, like, I mean, come on, six cents, like that is hard to top. Oh, yeah. And there was this, there was this sense of diminishing returns, even though I think Unbreakable is a strong movie, even though I think Signs is a good movie. Um, you know, kind of rattle off those first few, but you have this sense of a bit of diminishing returns. Like he kept feeling the need. He got sort of locked into this mode of twist ending and the audience Mm -hmm. is kind of came to kind of hate him for it. It was this weird kind of love hate sort of thing um, that sort of happened
0: there. And uh, so, so speaking of which, can we, can we spend another moment? Like this is our first springtime for Shyamalan. So I'm okay opening things up, sort of talking in broad terms and we'll get into specifics over the coming weeks. But can we spend a minute talking about what we define as a twist? And I'll, since I didn't pre-brief you for that question, I'll, I'll start. Um, and give you a moment to think about it. Like, for me, if something is a twist, then it is something where we, the audience, have been perpetually misled through the course of the film to believe one thing is true that we discover at the end another, a whole other thing is true. So, you know, there's a number of films where you're going through it and then there is something uh, slashers and we're talking about the horror genre in general. So a lot of slashers do this where uh, or a lot of mysteries do this where you are pretty sure the killer or the main antagonist is this person. But then uh, in big surprises, there's a reveal towards the final moments of the film that it's actually this going on. Let's talk about signs for a second, and we'll have a whole episode about signs. So I won't spend too long on this. I don't consider the ending of signs a twist, no, because it's not re—it's not redefining. No, it's the it's, information that you received beforehand. Sure, and, and sixth sense. Yeah,
2: go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, like, I, I think when I employ the word twist in this conversation, I simply mean audience expectation. Like you, you, you deliver right. oh, yeah. something like a sixth sense. You know, I wouldn't categorize what happens at the end of signs in the same vein as Six Incident and unbreakable and even the village. Right. Love or hate the end of the village. It is a twist. I mean, that's, that's a definitive that's new a twist. piece of yes. information that colors everything else. Um, but right. I would agree that signs is not in that same sort of category, but that's all I'm saying is like, I think he forced himself into that sort of box and you could you can him. see him kind of pushing the boundaries of it trying to get out of the box but but he never really successfully did until kind of more recently yeah i, I do agree with that so yeah i mean i think it is kind of this unfortunate catch 22 of him like there are ways in which his career is not his career without that component you know like right i mean even and we'll talk about it next week in more detail but even the visit I mean the visit has a twist.
0: That's absolutely
2: a twist. You know? I consider the visit to be a I twist. wouldn't even say I would not say we we we'll, we're about to dive into it. I wouldn't say split is really a twist. It is I don't think a split revelatory has a bit of information at the end, but right. um it doesn't change the narrative that you've just watched. Well, at least okay, yeah, we'll get into that. But well yeah. before we dive too far down the split path, um Uh, but speaking in broad springtime for Shyamalan terms, um, what is, I want to know what is, see, do we do this on three, like at the same time? I want to know what your definitive favorite Shyamalan movie is. Okay. What would you, you ready? Uh, Yeah, let's do it. I thought about, I thought about this today. One,
1: two, three. The 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 Sixth Sense.
2: Ah! Yours is The Village? It is. It is. Now listen, now there's, I, on, on the David S. Pumpkin scale, if the village is a 9.9, the sixth sense is like a 9.8. You know, I mean, it is, oh, it is okay. a very thin margin of, of, you know, discrepancy there. I just so am enamored. Like we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the village uh, in one of our episodes. Sure. So, some of the people who were derisive of our talking about Shyamalan period are like, Man, this cat Nathan has a funny joke every now and then, but I'm so not on board with his critical thinking skills <laughs> anymore like um, <laughs> I do think ob- they definitely want to make you prove your point sure, sure. i i 'll tell you well, that. No, I didn't say there's any point to prove. I just love the movie i'm I'm just avowing it as a favorite. fair enough, I think objectively Six Sense is almost unparalleled, and I do love the Sixth Sense, but I do think oh sure, sure I do think the it's you You know you, you have the whole movie of the village so i can't be like well take out that ending right but i was so enamored up until the ending that i'm i don't know it's it's this period or faux period gothic thriller scary romance i mean it was just mm-hmm. you know introduced us to bryce dallas howard joaquin's in there uh adrian brody I mean there's there was just a lot the score is unreal. I love the That's score. That's my favorite definitely. score of
0: any of his films. That I go back and forth between whether that or Unbreakable is my favorite score yeah. um of his. But uh one thing that I will sort of mention and then and and then maybe we'll uh dive more deliberately into split is I, I I'm enjoying that after a long string of nearly a decade of him being primarily derided, almost unanimously derided by the critical circles, it is nice with last year's The Visit and with this year's split um, that he's starting to come back into some affection, both with audiences and with critics. Some of us have stayed with him the whole time, even though we rolled our eyes through some of those weaker movies. We'll talk about that, I'm sure. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I, it's a good time to be a Shyamalan fan. I'll just say that. I want to take, I don't want this episode to be too terribly long for, you know, just everyone's sake, but I want to take maybe five minutes or so and talk about Unbreakable because this is, this is the appropriate place to do it. This is the sequel, quote unquote, that we've been waiting for for, you know, almost two decades. Do, do you remember when you saw Unbreakable? We were not friends when we saw when we saw Unbreakable. If you saw it in the theater, and here we are, we were not. We had not yet. Met. Um, it's it's like another life. I, mean, I don't. It is like another life. Doesn't it feel
2: that way? I have I have nothing in that in in my memory pre read. So there's, the, just no, no, <laughs> there's just nothing there. I have that effect on people. Uh, you know, I do. I vaguely remember seeing it in the theater. Unbreakable grew had to grow on me in a way that Sixth Sense didn't. Okay. Um Unbreakable, the first time I saw it, I think, to my recollection, again, pre-read, all of life is a bit of a blur. But um I, I did see it in the theater. I remember thinking, huh, well, I, you know, I definitely didn't see that coming. The further I got from that initial viewing and the more times I had watched it post that initial viewing, the more I grew to love it. Um, mm. I, you know, I think at the time, as you kind of do with Shyamalan Films, You've got to You're you're on your guard a little bit like I don't know what I'm going to watch here. You know, and so you're right. You right. are forecasting like, where is this going to go? Um, mm-hmm. But but I grew to just I mean, I would easily rank Unbreakable up there uh, with some of my favorites of his. Um, but yeah, I, yeah. I, I love I love that movie. Well, what's interesting about rewatching it right now? And uh, this was
0: one of the biggest things that I wanted to mention is the year 2000. You comic book devotee, bigger comic book fan than I am. Uh, You remember what big comic book movie broke the airwaves in 2000? X-Men. The first X-Men, which is credited as the first of the big comics boom that we're seeing, where now comic books are everywhere, and X-Men got there first. Admittedly, we had had Batman, Superman. There had been a number of properties that were based on comic books that existed almost every year before that, but X-Men was really like the one that sort of kicked the door down for like, now we're going to start seeing a ton of very high-level High pedigree properties made into films, but it's interesting because when I rewatched Unbreakable, it opens with a a brief little blurb, a sequence of blurbs about comic book consumption in general and about how, you know, many, many fans around the around the world read comic books. And it was interesting to me because I took note of that and I said if Unbreakable were com- if Unbreakable came out a few years ago that disclaimer would not be necessary. because right. comic books are everywhere right. now. Right. And so it was interesting what it put me back into mind of is it put me back into the mind of the fact that in 2000 when this came out they they weren't as there wasn't such a glut of them was, as there is right now. Hollywood property, right? I, absolutely. And so that made to a degree makes Unbreakable somewhat uh I, I'm reluctant to use the word revolutionary. I don't think it deserves that term, but it but it was definitely I think that can, that deserves to be considered to some degree groundbreaking. Sure. The fact that it's doing something in the comic book realm and deliberately addressing comic book
2: elements. You could say it was at the vanguard of the comic book movie boom.
0: Well, but yeah, I mean, I, I love Unbreakable. Uh, I love just, uh, you know, I don't want to have a whole mini episode about it right now, although we probably could, but, um, I just love the, the tone of Unbreakable. I love so good. the way it's paced. It, it holds up really well, having just seen it and having not seen it for about a decade. It holds up
2: really well. It's I a got beautiful story. I mean, it really is. It really is. You know, this yeah, this estranged really marriage and part of it. You know, some of some of these elements we talked about with frailty. You know, this character who has sort of given up on himself. Not giving. You know, that didn't happen in frailty, but as in like is searching for his purpose and what, yeah. what oh, a yeah. what a relatable, universally relatable sort of theme yes you know i I, even i didn't i haven't rewatched it in a while but there's so many sort of iconic images in it you know the the scene of him carrying robin wright up the stairs yes the scene of him weightlifting and them continually adding things oh the scene scene. of the sun with the gun you know powerful scene yeah uh one of my favorites in that whole movie is the is when he goes to the house to save the kids I mean, that is. I was going to say that. Thrilling. The whole
0: sequence.
2: Yeah. The whole sequence from
0: him going into the train station. That's right. That's right. And then bleeding it. That train station sequence. I rewound it like watching the film. I don't normally do this, but I like I, the scene ended. And before he went to the rest of the house, I, I paused it. I I wound it back and watched that scene again because I like this, I love to that. the scene, empty room. Scene. You said that's so good. Well, the room wasn't empty. I was with my <laughs> wife. But, uh, you know, but so uh, like it's one of those things where like I just th- I couldn't agree more. I think that entire thing is is very uh, it, it's just it's just gorgeous. And I think it's it's really it's got a potency to it that I wasn't expecting to be as strong as it was. In fact, you mentioned that gun scene. My first viewing of it and, and my couple of viewings of it went r- more recent to its release, I didn't like that gun scene. That was the one scene that I was like, let's take it out. Last night, it didn't bother me at all. I was really affected by it. So I think the film has some real staying power. Sure. And I think that it, it's got a lot in it. And I will say this as a, unless you have more accolades to uh, heap upon Unbreakable, I'll say this as a transition finally to get right into split. This I do think is possibly revolutionary. It's definitely groundbreaking. And if this, if this plays out the way that we think it might play out, this I think is revolutionary. I don't think there has ever been a comic book film franchise that has done this things this way, a comic book film trilogy or franchise or anything. We have with Unbreakable, we have, admittedly, before there were a lot of them, we have a sort of an origin story for a hero. Right. right? And we have that all playing out. And uh, naturally, Mister Glass, Samuel Jackson, and it is a is a villain. You could say that it was an origin story of that entire dynamic, and that it was an origin. But it's primarily an origin story of David Dunn sure. as a hero. Right. With split, you have what most people did not see coming: the origin story of a villain. Right. And ex- exclusively an origin story of the villain. Sure. Like to sure. the degree that 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 the heroes. Again, well, we're spoiling everything about Split. The, the heroes don't really make it right, right. <laughs> in Split. Like, like the, the villain is unquestionably the sort of last man standing at the end of all of these encounters. And so I, I got to thinking about it. I was like, how great would it have been if you had, like, a trilogy of films? And we didn't know who Batman was. We didn't know anything. Let's say Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy was reinventing the wheel. And you have, you know, a film that is the origin of Batman. And then you have a total other film. Completely separate, that's the origin of Joker. Sure. And completely, you know, totally different, and you don't realize until the end that it's connected. And then you have what we are presuming from 2017. Shyamalan has tweeted and has posted that he's working on this third film that we know is going to combine these two narratives. But then you have a third film where those two worlds collide. To my knowledge, it's never been done in a sort of superhero type story in the call film it world,
2: Done v. Horde*, *Dawn of Shyamalan* verse. Wow!
0: <laughs> now you've now you've just taken two films I love and irrevocably mirrored them with a film that I hate. So thank you I was for that. Say,
2: just like uh, the finest film of 2016, BVS DOJ. Yeah, that that, that movie has six initials and a Ugh. and a colon in the middle. <laughs>
1: I agree.
0: And that actually, that actually bleeds rather well into what I was going to say as, as sort of my, my primary. And I'll make it final thematic observation. You're going to have to fellow and I would say much larger Frederick Beekner fan are going to have to correct me or, or if, if I'm misquoting him or if I'm misappropriating this. But I remember a phrase from one of what I believe was some of Beekner's writings where he talked about having been a good steward of his pain and talked about becoming friends with our scars. Does that ring any bells? I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that that's Frederick Buechner, but I didn't do as extensive the homework as I have. I'm going to attribute it to Frederick Buechner. That. And if I find out and I'm wrong, I would, then
2: I want I'll to maintain it. the illusion of being the expert. And so I'll say, yes, that is very big. Okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, talking about being a good
0: steward of our pain and talking about, you know, sort of becoming friends with our wounds, as it were friends with our scars. I notice you know, something that Kevin says, well, the beast says it to Casey at the end uh, when he's, you know, peering through those bars in a horrific moment, but he's peering through the bars that she's sheltered herself with. And he says to her, um, he says, the broken are the more evolved, you know, yeah. uh, I'm not remembering the quote exactly, but no, that's, that's the, basically like, yeah, the broken are the more evolved. And we talk about there's a there's an interpretation of what we believe wholeness to be. That is in fact the exact opposite. Um, like sometimes we can believe in, in our culture right now. And when I say our culture, I'm not necessarily specifically referring to America. I'm not specifically, what I am specifically referring to is kind of a trend among more millennial Christianity. I'm seeing a trend that is embracing brokenness. And to that end, I am very, very pleased that finally there's a lot more boldness and a lot more willingness of people to admit their own fragility and to admit their own brokenness, the places where they struggle, be vulnerable in front of congregations, be vulnerable in front of friends, and in this community, be more open and willing to admit themselves to be broken. But I have seen it, and I do think it's possible, that that can twist. Oh, yes. And that can begin to become a glorification of brokenness. And it can begin to become an obsession where you can say, well, I'm, I'm just broken. And so I'm not even going to bother trying to push harder into something else because I'm, because I'm just busted. And so because I'm busted, this is just how I'm supposed to be. And I do think there needs to be a balance that's struck. And I think there needs to be sensitivity to this drug, because I believe you and I are both big proponents of therapy. We're both big proponents of admitting your vulnerabilities, of being honest with yourself, being honest with the people around you that you love that are in your life. And, And this is what I wrote down. I said the glorification of brokenness will lead to monstrous distortion. The acceptance of brokenness will lead towards wholeness. And I think that's the distinction that Shyamalan has made between the characters of Kevin and Casey, because I think at the end. That Kevin has glorified his brokenness to where he is, by narrative and by execution, a literal beast. He's a literal monster. Versus Casey, who I think after coming out of these experiences, again, maybe the third film is going to refute all of these theories about what happened to Casey at the end of the cop car. But I think that Casey is going to move on to an acceptance of the brokenness that she's dealing with. And I think she's on a path towards wholeness and towards healing
2: you're wanting to wind down and yet you're you're threatening to fire me up here. You know, this this <laughs> mainly with you cuz you're one of the primary people I talk to in my life, but these conversations of scars versus wounds and I feel like there's such mm. your point, your point is so well made and I, it resonates loudly with me of of this sort of commodification of brokenness we've started to show in, you know, kind of this as you described it millennial church movement. Like, oh, I'm so broken. This is just me. And oh, I'm just being real, y'all. Like, no. You know, right, you're just right, you are right. you are bleeding out all over everybody, not realizing that this is not helping. And I think right, I think right. there's in uh, uh 2000 years ago, we didn't have a blogosphere that allowed us to post and transmit our most intimate unprocessed thoughts in an instant. Right. Right. I think Jesus would deeply challenge us to say you are not meant to minister out of your wounds. You are meant to minister mm. out of your scars, and scars take time to develop.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It, it made me think of the passage, and I can't remember who he's actually talking to, but it is someone he eventually heals. I believe that he says, "Do you want to be well?" Oh yeah, the the man at the pool of Bethesda.
0: Yeah. I happen to know that and I, reference. Yeah. And I
2: think that's such a powerful question because mm-hmm. when we are in our woundedness, isn't there a? Wouldn't you presume? a desire for wellness. But I think so much of how we choose to operate and call it good and call it righteous and call it appropriate is really just bleeding all over people. And that if Mm -hmm. Jesus Mm -hmm. were to say to us, do you want to be well? We'd be like, well, wait a minute. What does that involve? Right. We'd say, wait, but you mean I don't get to... I was about to use the B word. I don't get to gripe about my pain. I don't get to gossip about who hurt me. I don't get to lament the things i've been through well wait i don't know that i want that you know right. and and i th- but well do you want to be well of course we think we want to be well ostensibly we want to be well you know theoretically we want to be well but there's you know this line from the movie the broken are the more evolved i would counter that with the well <laughs> are the more at home oh wow you know the broken that. yeah the broken are the more evolved the well are more at home you know like this, this is why Kevin becomes a villain. It isn't because he, and, and piggybacking on this sort of, are we, are we exploiting mental illness? It's not that he has mental illness why he becomes a villain. It's because he, by the end of the movie, begins to exploit his wounds. Yes. He, he, yes. he indulges his own woundedness to a monstrous level such that yeah. now he has this perception of power. Now, in the movie, in the context of the movie, he's got actual power and strength and that sort of thing. But right, my point right, is, right, right. we feel like our wounds give us power to sort of fluff our, puff ourselves up. So, oh, oh, I've been through what you've been through. Let's, let's commiserate and let's do this. It's like, well, there is a point where those things stop being helpful. And it's a very quick, right. you arrive at that point very quickly when you operate yes. this way. And we choose to just kind of sail on that.
0: back from the barn boy you are going to pay for that <laughs> let me tell you i should have never let you open this episode i should have oh, come hey, on hey i'll that's open funny. the visit i didn't know you were going to talk about reed as an incontinent individual <laughs>
2: that's, that's oh, great that's funny. it is great how you doing buddy I'm doing good.
0: I'm doing well. Yeah. I'm boy, I'm excited that we're doing springtime for Shyamalan. Yes. That is
2: uh... Yes, we are if if you're confused about what on earth we're talking about, um we are currently uh this is our second of five in a series we are dubbing Springtime for Shyamalan. And this week in particular, we are discussing uh the two thousand sixteen movie, The Visit Grandparent Story tying into the visit. What about you? Do you have a specific? Oh my
0: gosh. So I'll just, uh, uh I'll keep it to, uh, my grandfather told me one of my, f- he told me my favorite joke and I'm gonna honor <laughs> him in, in my way by, by great. telling my this favorite joke here right now. Uh, I will say that like all of my grandparents, uh, have, have passed on. The, uh, most recent one being my, my nanny. I used to spend so many summers with my grandparents the reason i'm saying all of that is because my, my grandfather was a pastor for a number of years very very serious man knew the bible almost verbatim and i'm not exaggerating to say that they used to in in sort of comical ways throw out a random scripture verse and he would likely be able to recite it to you like they would say uh, what's john 4:20 say and he would likely be able to pull it out right away he just knew the bible by heart he was Uh, just an exceptional preacher. And and my grandmother as well was just uh, devoted to children's ministry and wonderful human being that been said, my grandfather told me this joke. So (laughs) these, uh, these three ministers and their wives uh, died and they went to heaven. They stand at the pearly gates. And when they're standing at the pearly gates, uh, you know how all these jokes go, um, they're standing at the pearly gates. And then Peter tells the first minister, he says, listen, He said, you devoted your life to the Lord, so you're getting into heaven. That's no problem, but we want to point out to you your biggest vice. Um, You were so obsessed with money that you married a woman named Penny. You should have seen this coming. Um, So then anyway, they let the first minister in. The second minister is getting a little nervous, comes up there. Second minister walks up to St. Peter. St. Peter gives him the same spiel, and he says, you had such an addiction to sweets, and to desserts uh, and to sweet treats that you married a woman named Candy. Like, this this should have been obvious to you, right? And at this point, the third minister leans over at his wife and says, Fanny, maybe we better leave. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> I was admittedly very unprepared for that punchline. Wow! And I thought this is going to be that, like normal, sanitized preacher humor, but no. Oh my gosh! And,
0: and the fact that the fact that my grandfather, <laughs> who knew the Bible by heart and like and said that joke to me, it's, my, it's still my favorite joke. I've heard many hysterical jokes. Uh, that one's admittedly a bit cheesy, but that is still my favorite joke. So I'm going to oh, honor God. my papa's memory by sharing yes. the joke that he shared with me so many years ago. That is great. Oh. That is great. That's awesome.
2: Well, yes, this is a, this is a great prelude. Um, anyway, so yes, we are talking about the visit today. Um, so, did you see it in the theater? I did. Okay. I was. I okay.
0: So here's my brief history with the visit. I have watched all of Shyamalan's films, and after I saw The Happening, I really was like, okay, now now I think I'm I think I'm agreeing with everybody else. Had kind of started to break up with him with The Village or with Lady in the Water, and then I was like, no, I don't like The Happening at all. So now I think I'm breaking up with with Shyamalan. But then, when the visit started coming out, I saw that the reviews initially were rather positive. And so I was like, Huh, Shyamalan, still one of my favorite directors from his early stuff, is now having a movie out there that is getting mostly positive reviews. I've got to go see this. Right. And so I went to see it and nobody else would go with me because all of my friends have abandoned Shyamalan Ship. So I I basically I would have gone
2: with you, Reed. See, um, if but, we lived closer right, together. Exactly. That's, yeah. But,
0: um, but I went to see that and I, uh, walked out of the visit giggling to myself and <laughs> creeped out because it was late at night and driving home. And I just, I I loved it. I loved it so much. I've said to people before, like, the visit may not be for everybody, but good Lord, I am the audience for that movie yes. because I loved nearly every moment of it. So, so because you're an incontinent grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so
2: scary stuff. All of them involve Nana. The whole movie? Right. Does the
0: whole movie count?
2: Well, when when you start your sequence of scares with a barfing grandmother in the middle of the night, oh my gosh. Yeah. So my scares are barfing Nana, hide and seek Nana. Yeah. Um. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Hide and seek, Nana. Can I pause you
0: real quick and talk to you about how I'm very comfortably relaxed sitting there with my popcorn, everything like that, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> this hairy thing starts. Like, I'm gonna gallop you! I'm gonna get you! And how my popcorn like jumps up at from at for out of my lap because I jumped so high, and I just set the popcorn gently over to the side. Like, oh, That's okay, I think funny. this movie's taking a turn. Oh, oh my gosh. gosh! The basement than I thought. So when it took that dark, nasty turn, I mean, I'm deranged, so I loved it, but I was terrified <laughs> for most of that. Um, but the other, the other scary moment that I wrote down, which is really not so much scary, scary as it is make you run around in the middle of the night barfing. Uh, but, uh, uh, but you got to think about germs, don't you? That that's the moment I wrote down. You oh, know what I'm talking about? The diaper face. Oh, when he says you got to think about germs, don't oh. you? I'm like,
1: Good God. Yeah.
0: That is, that is the worst thing Shyamalan has ever done to a character.
2: Yeah. We're so desensitized in our violence culture to dead grandparents in basements. That it was really the diaper in the face. That was the worst thing in that movie. I was like, no, no, uh, uh-uh. uh. Even listen,
0: even Freddie and Jason and Michael Myers didn't ever shoved <laughs> a diaper in somebody's face. Okay? Even, even they were sitting there going like, man, pop ups twisted, pop ups sick, man. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, they're like, we'll do some nasty stuff to people, yeah. but man, popcorn. Michael Myers
2: through. and the boys are sitting there eating their popcorn, and they're like, "Oh, Katy Perry, <laughs> no, I ain't good." What did you What did you take away from a from a kind of a thematic standpoint? Well, you know what's funny is up until the halfway point, I was writing down some themes, and those themes, just in in sort of one or two words form, was grandparents. Uh, elder care, plight of the old. And then at the halfway point, I was like, oh, no, this isn't what this movie's about at all. (laughs) (laughs) Because I thought it was sort of setting you up for like, oh, these poor old people, no one's taking care of them. You know, they're they're being mistreated. The system's abusing them. Like, how are we going to take better care of the old people in our society? Oh, wait a minute. No, these are just crazy old people who will wipe diapers in your face. Um, Oh my gosh. So, so no, I had to sort of redirect. Um I do think I only really had one major theme and, and most of my themes of late are just derived from quotes from characters. And this is um mm. the mom at the very end when she's being recorded and she's talking about forgiveness and she says it was there when, oh, whenever I wanted it Yeah, with reference to the loss she now feels over her parents and how she never mended that relationship. And I think, I mean, this will really be, I'll respond to whatever you have to say, but just kind of my soul kind of contribution to the theme conversation. Like that was so powerful. I mean, there is, you know, for a movie as sort of wild of a ride as the visit is like, that is a, a grenade. And to use our normal language of, of truth, like the, the relationships that we through, through our, severing or through by the severing of others relationships that have been broken by time and by wounds and by things we didn't intend the forgiveness you want towards people you've hurt or people that have hurt you is always available it is just so beholden to us to to seek it out or to offer it um, but it, but, it, yeah. but it, but it, but it harkens back. I keep cutting you off when I think you're trying to jump in. I'm sorry for that, but it harkens oh, okay. back to, um, uh, to split and how the, the question of do you want to be well? Right. I mean, that's it. Right. Do you right. want forgiveness? Do you want mm-hmm. to be forgiven? Well, sure, but I'll get back. I'll get to that at some point. Right. And, and then there's a moment that will come in your life where that availability is gone. Yeah. Anyway, so that's that was actually, just something that was really, really, really resonant to me.
0: That's one of my that's one of my primary primary themes as well is just uh, the the ramifications of unforgiveness of lingered unforgiveness. Sure. Um, and one thing that I will say, just looking at Shyamalan's body of work, is that before the visit and before Split, he had really rarely told very many cautionary tales. Hmm. You know, even though it's not a good film almost at all. The happening could kind of be seen as one uh, about environmental sure, issues, sure. but, but he had really rarely told a story where, um, you know, the characters face irrevocable consequences for actions that they had taken and stuff like that. And in this one, um, and in Split, both of them end with a kind of a sort of a, a, a heaviness to the plot. Um, I'll speak specifically about Visit because we, we talked extensively about Split that, you know, yes, the, the the fact that these two people are not Becca and Tyler's grandparents is one thing, but the fact that Becca and Tyler will never know their grandparents, sure that they will never know them at all, sure. they are only going to hear about them through stories, many of which are filtered through this lens of a 15-year gap of, you know, that, that there's not really any relationship between their mom. And their grandparents because of this. And it all came down to the mom not choosing to accept the forgiveness that was being, that had been handed to her. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, months after the events which rifted them. Right. Um, that, that it was not very long at which an olive branch was extended and rejected by the mom. Right. To, to, to make amends with these people. And I will say, not to get super heavy, super quickly, but, that's one of the things that that I think every human being on the planet who's wrestling with something always suffers from. There's going to be time. Right. There's going to be time right. to make things right. There's going to be time to make things better. There's going to be time to make the phone call. Now, I don't say that you have to do things you're not ready for. I don't think that you have to force yourself into things you're not emotionally ready for in terms of forgiveness. Sometimes the rifts are deep and sometimes the rifts are irrevocable to where the relationship will actually never be reunited again. But I do think that we all suffer from the falsity that time is abundant for us, that sure. there's always going to be these multiple opportunities. Things happen every single day that don't even necessarily involve death, that just changes forever the nature of the situation. And what was before and what was readily available to us before now is, is no longer for us. And I think that we see that in the visit play out. Obviously, the, the visit is a heightened story. It's, it's got a lot of, I'll even use the word absurdity going on in its, in its narrative beats. But so many things would have been different. Uh, uh Becca and Tyler would never have been in this position if they had right. ever seen their grandparents. So I think that one of the things that I specifically Walked away with is, is just to say we always imagine that there will be enough time to take care of whatever we need to take care of, to repair whatever has been damaged. We always presume that I can sit with this anger. I can sit with this outrage. I can sit with this bitterness, with this resentment, and I will deal with it when I feel like dealing with it. When I've got time, I'll deal with it. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes we do eventually get that opportunity. We do eventually get the chance to make things right. That happens frequently. Whether or not we take it in those moments, that's really what we're talking about. Is it's not even so much just, oh, I've got time or I'll, I'll be ready someday. It's also the notion of will you accept it when it's given to you? When an opportunity to make things right is given to you, is presented to you, will you take it? Or do you want to just hold on to your resentment? Do you want to just hold on to your bitterness? Well, and, and to, um, if yeah. I
2: if I can jump in to kind of piggyback on that, it's also this movie is actually it's a good illustration of how the wounds we inflict on others, um the wounds that get, get inflicted on us, the forgiveness we seek or don't seek, the forgiveness we offer or don't offer, affects more than just us. Uh, absolutely, like, yes. It's not even just that these kids will never know these grandparents, but my gosh the actions of 15 years ago by the mom have now propelled her children into life-threatening scenario that, that now in, in, in a lot of ways they owe her some forgiveness. Am I saying that correctly? You know what I mean? Like, like there's, there's deep apology that has to happen on her part towards them. You know, there's, there's, there's there's a way in which the movie kind of, it honors the emotional subplot. It doesn't honor some of the psychological subplot. There's a way, like in the credits with Tyler, you know, who's rapping and stuff. It's like, yeah, there's no way that kid is that whole after that experience, you know, that quickly. Um, Mm -hmm. but Right, right, right. Right. So sort of the psychology gets kind of brushed to the side, but, um, on an emotional level, you know, those actions and, and, you know, the, the relationships in our own lives and how, sensitively or not we are towards them have ramifications beyond just us and that individual
0: in full abundance we have had several conversations about forgiveness
2: on this show
0: uh, even starting with devil devil got into a little bit of confession and forgiveness we've talked about it many times but i think uh you know by way of sort of winding down i just want to walk away recognizing and saying like if you have a-, a relationship in your life that you know you would like to repair don't wait to try to to repair it. Do everything that you possibly can to try to make things right. If you were the one who, who was wounded, if you were the one who was hurt, then I would strongly encourage you not to let – she says it. The mom says it to Becca in the movie. You can't hold on to anger. It will destroy you, and it will destroy, as you pointed out, it will destroy more than just you. It will echo and reverberate throughout possibly even generational things right. because it's her children that have been affected, not like – her, sure. the person she's in a relationship right now. It's her children. So it will continue to extend. Okay, all right, my friend. We are giving the visit. I just want to point out that because of you, we gave Frailty a seven, and we gave the Exorcist an eight and a half. The Exorcist an eight and a half, Nathan Rouse. But. We are officially giving the visit nine David S. (laughs) Pumpkins.
1: Yeah, nine David S.
0: Pumpkins. Oh man! But no, seriously, I think this is a really, really great film. I do love it. It's one. It's one of my favorite M Night Shyamalan experiences. Um, And uh, and it was really glad after some of the travesties that he had been putting out that that uh, the visit sort of kicked the door back down.
2: Springtime for Shyamalan. Let's uh, let's jump into some of this. Oh, um, I think you sense. wanted to. Do you want to preface all of this by by sort of talking about this particular chapter of Shyamalan's career? <laughs>
0: I do because I can. Well, here's what's funny about it, and I, maybe I'm presuming too much about our listenership because some uh, we've talked already. We talked the last couple of weeks about how he, he's kind of something of a divisive uh, personality as a filmmaker, not because he himself, you know, says. Uh, A lot of outrageous things, but just his films tend to polarize people about whether they they really love them or they really, for some reason, despise him. The film we're talking about today, like if you were to look at the films of his that have merit, you're not really going to get much kickback about Unbreakable. You're not really going to get much kickback about Sixth Sense. For the type of show we do, Signs probably isn't going to get much kickback. Uh Even The Visit and the recent split seem like natural inclusions. But we specifically, and we referenced it in our very first episode of this show, that we are very affectionate about The Village. We're calling our series The Springtime for Shyamalan. Perhaps this is a good opportunity to talk about the fall of Shyamalan. Or, or the winter. The winter. <laughs> or the winter, yes. Uh, about some of the films that uh that really are unanimously panned, so I wanted to talk a little bit. I'll save the village conversation for when we're actually talking about the village, but I wanted to address specifically Lady in the Water and the Happening. You've seen both and yes. you are you are unfavorable I, towards both of them,
2: right? Um I think Lady in the Water was the first real I, I can understand historically the village as See we I think your your seasonal uh nomenclature was appropriate perhaps the Village is the fall, and everything post that is the winter of Shyamalan. Mm-hmm. Um, I can recognize The Village as being a potentially divisive movie in terms of him, because everything after that, up until kind of the visit for me, or even Devil, you know, due to his involvement in that. But mm, um right. I did see Lady in the Water. I did see The Happening. I didn't like Lady in the Water. I seriously, actively dislike. Hate is too strong a word, because The Happening just isn't really worth that level of emotional investment. <laughs> right. Um, but I really actively dislike it. Um, yeah. You know, lady in the water, I feel like was an interesting exercise. I don't know where you're going with these two particular strands of conversation or if it was just meant to be open-ended, but one specific thing I I, 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 one specific thing I really disliked about lady in the water and you may kick back on this. I don't know. I hated that the opening credit sequence told you the whole story you're about to watch oh i agree with that criticism yeah i remember thinking what a terrible choice Mm -hmm. especially for a a filmmaker who's known for kind of twists and mystery
1: Mm
2: -hmm. i don't even have to watch the movie now you've literally just shown me the entirety of what you're about to live action show me.
0: Well, and the big reason that's problematic for the film itself is because then he devotes way too much screen time to further exposition. You right, tell us right. the whole story up front and then devotes a lot of screen time to characters explaining and further diving into this mythology, oh, um, which is one of the big, one of the big problems of the film. I am an apologist of certain elements of Lady in the Water. I am not an apologist of Lady in the Water as an overall film. It's sure, a film sure. that you either connect with certain elements of it or you don't. And I don't think it's objectively uh, that great. But uh, the emotional components of the film, there are there are some beats in the narrative
2: itself that I actually really strongly respond to. But yeah, I'm I, mean, also, I think Giamatti's, Giamatti's big breakdown towards the end is mean, very powerful. To my recollection, I remember that being very strong. Giamatti as an
0: overall character, his overall character arc is right. is actually quite lovely. And I think that that's, that's noteworthy in the film. The film has some substantial things to say about purpose and about design and about destiny. Now, that doesn't negate some of the problems in its narrative and some of the problems in its structure, but, um, I think there's some themes there. Not that we would do a whole episode about it, but I think there's some themes there that might, you know, warrant some merit or warrant a revisit. I heard actually, uh, there was a, a good friend of mine who's, uh, into musical creation, songwriting and, and, uh, musicianship and stuff that, um, he said, you know, some songs you write and they're for everybody. They're accessible. They're about broad themes. They're they sort of uh, connect with a wide array of people. And some songs you write are just for you. They're just sure. yours. They come from a similar place in terms of your creative output, but they're really just for you. And it was interesting to look at Shyamalan's career because here's a man who has been so because of the success of Sixth Sense, he he was so thrust into the spotlight. For, for right. everybody and, and right. became like this, you know, he was being, comp- literally was being compared to Hitchcock and Spielberg after two films. Well, sure, he had sure. made three, but two known films. And really right. most people thought Sixth Sense was his debut. So he was already sort of in the forefront with these names being bandied about. And then you get Unbreakable and the, the success around that. Signs had a similar sort of, um, you know, ethos attached to it. Then you get uh when you start getting into the village and you get into Lady in the Water then some people really were sort of like oh man now he's just on this downward spiral he's just deconstructing and so as a result Well you could al-
2: you could almost make a case you, you made a a reference to music a minute ago you could almost see and be more gracious towards something like Lady in the Water if it were like a B-side you know what i mean Yeah it's oh, like, absolutely absolutely it's like, oh, you know it's material from him is it going to hit the cylinders that like a 6th sense does no is right. it m- does it merit a viewing and possibly some conversation? Sure, um, right. Which I wouldn't. Again, I wouldn't necessarily say about the happening because I can. But I see what you're saying, and I can, I, I, I can, I can dig on that. that yeah, that makes some sense.
0: And and I think that's part of what is is frustrating. Well, frustrating is not the right word. That's part of why I'm a little sympathetic towards it because, in your very appropriate analogy, imagine if a B-side is suddenly thrust as the new single for right. for a hot right. band, and and it doesn't even chart because it's. It's a B side. It's not. Right. It's not got the same intentions. It's not got the same structure. And so as a result, everybody's like, "Oh man, this single sucks. The band's going down. Their career's over." It's like, "Whoa, whoa, hold on!" Right. You right.
2: know. And um. And so well, anyway, and you gotta imagine. You gotta imagine using using the um, the talking points you did just a minute ago in terms of the Hitchcock, the, the Spielberg, like the sheer weight of pressure mm-hmm. m- is enormous. Oh you yeah. Know? And and especially when you have for better or worse. I mean, and in many ways he did this to himself, but when you've developed a very specific narrative structure, you know, like to deviate from that might feel like you are not honoring your fandom. Right. Right. To hue too close to it means you start getting weak entries uh, or people start forecasting. Oh, this is what that movie is. This is how it's going to end. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think sympathetic is a good word. You know, I, I can see how Lady in the Water might fit that mold you're describing.
0: So when I rewatched The Happening, so it was my third time seeing it. Wow. I know. First time in the theater. Second right. time, shortly after I started dating my wife, uh, she had never seen the movie. And I was like, you know what? This is a good opportunity for me to try to revisit this and see if my, my opinions about it changed. That second viewing with my wife, I was like, this movie is the dumbest thing I have ever seen in my life. It is such a ridiculous waste of time, And I was like and I said, I'm never going to watch this again There's until here we are until we start doing a, a podcast about, you know, a podcast series about Shyamalan. So here's what I will say about the happening. I think that the first half of the film is pretty well shot and it has some really compelling visuals that it is hard to beat that. That from the ground shot upwards right, of people right. diving off the building right. and, and, and that's not the only one, but there's some really compelling visual moments in the first half of the film and the general setup for the film. Again, not the premise, which I still think is very ridiculous, but the setup for the premise before you find out what's actually going on is pretty frightening and pretty compelling. And it's got, it's got some, um, uh, attributions of like just large scale disaster material sure, that, that sure. can
2: work really well. And, yeah. What is fascinating about the happening, other than very little, is the sequence towards the end at the barn house or whatever it is.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: With the old people. I thought that was a pretty compelling sequence. Yeah. It's a. Uh, yeah. In another and, movie, it would have been really good. Yeah. And
0: and, sh- and here's one thing that is is fascinating to me is, is that any number. Th- this is a, a perfect example of. The trees undermining the forest for me because
2: there's uh, that's a funny that's a funny analogy for this movie. yeah see
0: because um not only yeah in both literal and metaphorical senses like not only are there there are probably four or five individual elements of the happening that taken on their own and examined right. as an individual right. thing I I quite like like I said I but not Marky the,
2: Mark's performance no 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 that would be one of them.
0: But like, I already mentioned, there's some visual stylings in the first half that I think are still, that, that's fantastic. But it just, and there's even that moment, uh, John, I don't care if we spoil the happening. John Leguizamo's death scene in the car is actually rather poignant and and kind of hits you. Like, they're trying to close up all the windows because they realize they're driving into a place where the blah, blah, blah. They're trying to, (laughs) yeah, so they're trying to close up all the vents and everything. And he realizes there's this, it's a convertible and there's this one little cut in the tarp. you know
2: what a stupid sentence you just said exactly right <laughs> so
0: <laughs> it's convertible let's close
2: up all the windows
0: no, no. oh no the nah,
2: down. oh my Leguizamo god deserves better than that
0: <laughs> so I, I, i've been talking a while about the other stuff uh, i want to know you cited this a couple weeks ago yep as your favorite m night Shyamalan film
2: i did and we'll, justify um, yourself sir sure well it was funny. I rewatched it since I made that declaration, since I proclaimed my my love for it, and I was a little worried. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. This is gonna suck. I'm gonna really have to eat some crow <laughs> if if this movie just doesn't hold up. Um, I would like to report that it was a firm still holds its place. This is your favorite. All right. Well, I, well, here's okay. Let's caveat that a little bit. I think probably what's gonna happen when I rewatch Six Sense um, mm. is they will be kind of neck and neck. I do think probably objectively. And even partially subjectively, Sixth Sense is a stronger movie. Oh, no question
0: objectively. I, I'm anxious oh, to hear how you whoa, feel about it sorry. subjectively. <laughs>
2: um, <laughs> I didn't mean to <laughs> question the woods themselves, the the air itself, the trees from polluting us. <laughs> anybody um, who
0: thinks, I-, I love you with all my heart, but anybody who thinks The Village is objectively a better movie than Sixth Sense is factually incorrect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that
2: came through loud and clear just then. Um, <laughs> but I think The Village has such uh here's here's my sort of broad sweeping assessment of the village. It has some problems, but I'm so gracious towards those problems because what I think is strong about it you just use this this sort of through line with the happening um or even lady in the water that pieces of it oh, are yeah. strong. I think the village there are enough strong pieces mm-hmm. that it still kind of holds together, but the the weaknesses do threaten it. Do threaten to sink the ship. Uh, you and I texted about this, and this can be part of likes and dislikes. For me personally, you could almost have everything else suck in this movie, and the execution of the scene where Ivy holds her hand out in Good anticipation Lord. of Lucia's taking it will we'll, we'll take a garbage movie and uh, elevate it to at least a 5 out of 10. That scene alone is so powerful. Nathan. I have seen the village probably.
0: I've seen the village probably four or five times now. This recent reviewing was probably my fifth or sixth time seeing it, and I knew it was coming. I thought about the scene. I've thought about the scene multiple times. The moment he takes her hand and the music changes, I cry. I I do it every single time I see the movie because of what's happening. And this is probably gonna. I'll save some of my comments for that scene specifically when we get a little bit into theme, but. That moment specifically, like when she holds her hand out and you see the, the creature coming towards her and everything. And then, y- yes, viewers of the film know what's really happening in that moment. And they know that she's uh, not.
2: If that's the first time you've seen that movie, I think you're a little unclear. I said, that that's point. what I'm
0: saying. Viewers of the film. Oh. Sorry, uh, I should rephrase it. The people who have seen the movie already know, yeah, 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 yeah. know yeah. that she's not in any real danger. Right. Know that there's that there's nothing else going on. She doesn't know that. And Lucius, and neither do
2: neither do that. Yeah, neither does anyone else in that house.
0: Lucius and Ivy don't know that. So, with the awareness that they don't know, they're not in real danger. That moment is powerful. Magical. It is so powerful. And and him taking her hand, the slow motion, the music changes. I I tear up every time I see that that all play out. And uh and I think that that moment again. I'll get into a little bit more into it when we get into theme. But I think that moment is the hinge point for me of this film. What's taking place there, substantiated by the the broader narrative, is part of why I defend this film a great deal, even though I would I would acknowledge some problems with it. But that's why I say like that what's happening in that scene connects with me so profoundly that I can't help but love this film.
2: Well, you make a, you make a good point and we can, we can tie, use this to tie off likes, dislikes before we move into scares. But I think, and I texted you a little bit about this on my rewatch, it almost, it it really kind of hurts my heart that the movie ends the way it does in the sense that it makes me sad, not because of the content on screen, because I think if, if Shyamalan's going for a twist, the twist of Noah being the being the perpetrator of some of this other scurrilous activity that the elders aren't aware of and yes. ultimately Ivy being responsible for his death is a very strong twist. Yeah, oh, I like, agree. Like that's mm-hmm. that's potent, that's effective, it's narratively sound, it works on every level with everything you've seen up until then. Once she crosses that that, you know, wall line, mm-hmm. it just falls apart and in yeah. such a sad way because there's almost the sense in which the movie unintentionally has this cynical sort of note to it. It does. Um, yeah. Yeah, that does. you've sent the blind girl, you've told her just enough. She still thinks that this, these woods are haunted by these monsters because she just encountered one and she doesn't know what she's just encountered. Mm-hmm. But in terms of just likes dislikes, it is hard to, it is effective in the, in the millisecond in which it happens as a viewer, you know? in in other words, if you're not anticipating that ending for a moment you'll be like whoa and then you'll be like wait mm. i don't it doesn't really work see um well, go ahead go ahead
0: and and i had a i had a slightly different experience about this i alluded to this i believe in our first episode uh might have it, it was either our first episode or devil um i alluded to this that uh, you know signs at first i had mixed feelings about signs has grown on me to where i i now love it but uh when it first came out I had kind of mixed feelings about it. So then when The Village came out, I had a friend. I don't know if he had gotten a hold of a copy of The Village or if he had spoken to someone who was working on the film. Regardless of that, he came to me and he said, "What would you think the twist would be of this basic premise?" And I guessed the twist right away because it's the simplest most Because you're brilliant. I'm right? I'm rather smart. But um I guessed the twist right away and I had this like big sort of like anger That's stupid. That's ridiculous. You know, started really casting it down wouldn't and, and wanted to not go see the film. And it was only because my cousin was in town that he really wanted to go see the film. And I was like, okay, fine, I'll go see this movie and I won't poo poo the experience for him. So I just went into it and I was very surprised by the general craft of the film by some of these mm-hmm. moments that we're talking about. So I had already kind of had my moment where I was like, well, this ending is stupid, but I kind of went into the film knowing that the ending was going to be kind of right, dumb right. and wound up really enjoying and appreciating the film. I did want to note that it's, it's, it's uh, cinematographer is Roger Deakins. Who's right. a legend in, yep, I mean, yep. he's shot his, his work is so brilliant and it's so beautiful. This film looks phenomenal Uh, and even in its, even in its lesser moments, it looks wonderful. And, and so thinking about like that twist and that ending, I don't know that it's really needed, but here's the problem. And maybe we'll get into this when we get into theme, uh, without that general twist, the theme is not the same. Like, like with, without that specific twist of what the, the, the villagers are up to the, the theme, I mean, well, okay. Okay. Let's say this film really does take place in the 1900s or the, uh, the late 18, late 1800s, early 1900s, that it really takes place there and the villagers themselves are simply fabricating these creatures and that it's, it's really in olden times, but they're, they're just, they're just fabricating those that we don't speak of. If you're saying that that in and of itself, that they're just fabricating these creatures would have been a good enough premise and keep it all in the 19th century, that I would agree with. And I think that that would hold up better. Then what we what we genuinely get, because it just the what we genuinely get about them really being in modern days and all these gymnastics that they've got to go through to keep this village secluded and their right, own right. seclusion. Um, that Um That's just too much to try to ask for logically. But if you do have like this small little village that some bad things have happened to because of, you know, things that happen in the town and progress and whatever, and then that they've created these monsters to sort of keep the villagers at bay. That is still interesting, and I think that would not necessarily have been as derided as what we get with the village. So, yeah, I was about to say the theme doesn't stay the same, but the theme stays the same as long as the elders are fabricating the monsters. If the elders are fabricating the monsters, the theme remains intact, and you didn't necessarily have to set it in modern times to get that theme across.
2: Well, and it's just it's it's a B-side ending, you know, to... So I'm going to read this a little bit, and then can unpack some. um Okay, so I, I said this. I used this language earlier. I love the movie. Whoring it's hard on its sleeve. There's a strong emotional resonance in what's kind of an unorthodox romance. But is it condoning that which it seems to be condemning? Hmm. Because the the elders are the villains. Let no one be confused here.
1: Yes. But
2: by the time the movie ends and you can feel free to kick back on this, the legacy of their misdirection is going to continue. Yes. Ivy, is ig- Ivy is ignorant to Noah's activities and thinks there was a real one after her. And, and feel free to pick this word apart if you want to. There's a way in which I can't tell if this is a confused narrative. Because there's a way in which the movie and Shyamalan, perhaps, through it is trying to indict the elders. Right. Maybe. But I don't feel like the end supports that argument. Because hmm. the end, they get away with it. Now, right. you could, you could make the case, well, sometime in the far future, they're still going to get found out and there's all this sort of stuff. Sure. But the way the movie ends is Ivy thinks there are monsters and she doesn't have any clue what it is she encountered to, to get the medicine. Right. And the elders know their secret is safe. So, so we can pick that apart if we want to, but, but I want to address something broader and, and in terms of our usual strain of conversation here of, of what are some faithful ideas we can pull out from this. And it's fascinating to me to watch this movie because there's this way of secluding oneself, mm-hmm. of cloistering oneself, of letting fear of the world Drive you away from the world. And here's another theme we can pick apart. They then <laughs> utilize fear to keep the younger folks from knowledge and awareness. Yes. In other words, the elders would see themselves as noble. They would see themselves as we are doing a favor to these people, to our, our, the generations that are coming under us by keeping them safe. But it is so unfaithful, right? Because yeah. if you want to borrow scriptural language, if, if Jesus himself uses geographical language ever, what does he say we're supposed to be? A city on a hill. Yeah. It cannot be hidden, right? Absolutely. And, yeah. Okay. And I, and I think there's something really fascinating here and very applicable. Because I'll be doggone if we don't attempt to do what the elders do every day of our lives.
0: I wrote down, and I don't even know, this is probably too lofty of a statement, but I said, immaturely responding to the consequence of sin creates unreasonable monsters. So saying that again, sort of piecing it out, is that if we don't respond to the temptations that we all suffer from, and the temptations that are all present, and the very real reality of sin that that exists in our heart right now, if we don't respond to that, in a sort of prophetic and Christ-like way, then we're going to create monsters. We are going to fabricate monsters of alcohol. We're going to fabricate monsters of sexuality. We're going to fabricate monsters of any number of things that definitely have consequence to handling them in an inappropriate and immature way. But then we create Those objective things and we make them into those we don't speak of. We make them into things that are that we are not allowed to even entertain. We're not allowed to even, you know, it's like the old Derek Webb song. Don't teach me about moderation and liberty. Just give me a new law. Like, don't don't teach me how to handle this. Don't teach me how to be a mature adult, living, breathing embodiment of Christ likeness in the world. Just give me another rule that I slam down, follow to the letter and move on with my life. That's what most of us think. Well, I shouldn't say most of us. That's what. Well, I think I, a, an unprophetic think way. of, most of at I it don't is. think.
2: I don't think most of us think that actively. I do think that's very subconscious. And in fact, one of the things I wrote down that sort of syncs up with what you're saying is, you know, religion, and and you could make a great case that these people are 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 practitioners of a religion. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. And I said it is corporately agreed upon superstition. mm Hmm. You know, it is it is we are all agreeing to operate under these very specific guidelines, which is, you know, we've created these monsters. You need to acknowledge that they are real um, to in order to yes. keep everybody safe and in line. Um, you need to in, indoctrinate everyone to the, be, the safe colors and the bad colors. Yes. And what these things are references to, because in the moment, those things seem kind of silly and, and incidental to a story. But when you look at them through the lens of people creating a system of belief in order to. Achieve a specific result, it all works together, and in fact, this is no. what you you don't get to espouse love and still want to hold on to this right, yes, because they are well
0: because they are polar opposites of each other, they are oil right. and water. you do not operate in fear and operate in love at the same time. you know what um we we will probably start winding down here shortly, but this is probably a good time. I had two scriptures that I think we've used on this show before but they couldn't be more palpable or relevant to what this story is is driving at. The first one is one I know we've referenced before. Might have referenced it in our pilot episode. 1 John chapter 4 verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And I wanted to key specifically in on that that it's it's usually just sort of passed over in the passage because fear has to do with punishment. It is about consequence and it is about this sort of, uh, uh you know, we're going to get punished for transgressing. And that's all rooted in fear. That's fear theology. We're going to get punished for transgressing. Then 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, yep. but of power and of love. And of a sound mind and some translations mm-hmm. just to be uh, my, my theological scholars out there are going to say, like, well, that translation of fear really is talking about timidity. True. But it's the same thing. He didn't give us a fear. He didn't give us a spirit that makes us retreat. He didn't give us a right, fear, right, a spirit right, that makes right. us seclude ourselves and isolates us. He's given us power, strength, you know, wholeness. Love, which is open-heartedness towards your fellow man, believers or non-believers, and a sound mind, clear thinking, reasonable, rational thinking. Those are the things which God purports in us. That's what Christ-likeness really is um, amongst a a, a multitude of other things like self-sacrifice and emptying of yourself. That's what Christ-likeness is as well. But power and love and a sound mind are staples of healthy theological presence, and they are so I, I am actively resisting going off on how <laughs> the church is not known for power and love and sound mind anymore. Right, right, right. The church is known for fragility and judgmentalism, and it tends to be known for irrational thinking and a an anti intellectual. Well think
2: about the think about this, Reed. Think about this. The um the line when Lucius is is companioning with Fenton on the Tower and Imagine this being said out of the mouth of a 21st century churchgoer, and it will perfectly sync up. What does Fenton say about why we stay here? And he says, because out there, there are wicked places where wicked people live. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yes. And and you just identified it perfectly. Well, what happens? Are we going to judge Noah? Maybe, but the wickedness is going to find you. You cannot just cloister yourself and isolate yourself and seclude yourself in such a way that these things aren't going to find you because they're woven into our DNA. And I don't mean that as in necessarily that what I didn't mean was, you know, we're all just going to ultimately do bad things. That's not what I mean. But there is a way in which you just, it is unhealthy and inappropriate and unfaithful to pretend that we aren't capable of things just because we sort of sequester ourselves from others and to somehow play this uh, wicked places where wicked people live, kind of card, is so 2017 American. You know, you you called me out on Beatenburg quotes a couple episodes ago, and I'm <laughs> gonna actually I'm gonna actually use one that's hanging over our mantle that is in fact a beatner quote, and it says, "This is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Mm. Do not be afraid." Mm. You know, and you've got these elders who say, "Who who stop at this is the world?" <laughs> yes. Yes, you know. And or or rather they say this is the world terrible things will happen, be afraid, run and hide.
0: Yes, run and hide. Run and you know, uh scatter yourselves because the film also has a significant and I'll come back to that moment. This is what I was going to say about the 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 moment that we both love where where Ivy holds out her hand.
2: The film has oh, I love that scene so much. I know. <laughs> that might that might I, I mean Take Shamalan out of the picture. Like, if I had to, I don't know that I could actually do it, but if I had to sit down and make like a top 10 or 15 scenes ever, like that might make that look. It's
0: powerful. It's so powerful. And because of that scene and because of Ivy and Lucius's relationship, the film has a tremendous amount of things to say about trust. Because this, Mm, the elders are saying, trust us, be afraid. Trust us, be terrified. But then Ivy, instinctively puts trust because of what? Because of the love that she has. And that moment, I I referenced the passage earlier from first John, that moment, what happens when Ivy trusts more than she's afraid and trusts out of love? Perfect love drives out fear. She stands there and she says, I am going to, yeah, man. And she holds that hand out saying he's coming. He's yep. coming. And oh my God, what would happen if more faithful, be- I'm about to, this is the, this is the Pentecostal preacher in me there starting to come out. What would happen if more faithful Christ-like believers, instead of get in the basement, hide, lock the doors, keep all the bad people out, extended a hand and said, yep. He's coming. The King's yep. coming. We can trust. We stand here. We know there are monsters about. We know that there are things worth being afraid of. But he's coming. If there was more sort of that prophetic spirit extending the hand out, knowing in hope that it will be, you know, we talked about this with Bone Tomahawk when we went off about that whole like having value and and the substance of things not seen and, and the evidence of things, hope, things hoped for. Sure, Ivy sure. standing on the porch with her hand extended is one of the most Profound statements of what I consider to be authentic faith I have ever seen in any film. And yep. yes, it's rooted in romantic relationship. It's rooted in all of those things. I'm aware of that, listeners. But that doesn't it's matter. It's still that's to me. Not, that's not. Oh, yeah. and, and the fact that what happens right before the red cloaked thing that they, that we don't speak of gets to her, he grabs her hand and ushers her in and so good.
1: Whoa! love this movie so yep. much. This is so and great. then the, and
2: then the score kicks in and oh. we all cry and we cheer and yeah. Oh. And I, and I
0: would just say, cause we need to wind down. We've already been, we've already been talking a while. We knew this episode was going to go a little long and that's fine. Um, but this is a subject you and I are both deeply passionate about clearly, not just as it pertains to the film, the village, but this subject sure. in general, it's why we do a show about horror films and faith is we are not called to live in fear. We are not called to live in fear of anything except for the fear and trembling we work out our salvation with, which we've already right. unpacked doesn't mean run and hide. We are, we are not called to be afraid of the world, afraid of the government, afraid of them, the other, the thing. We are not called to be afraid. We are called to live in power and in love and in clear thinking, a sound mind. And when we dig our heels in to be perfected in the love of Christ and in the love of God, that perfect love, we are promised in scripture will drive out that fear we will cast it out because we will no longer as lucia says think about what will happen we will think about what needs to be done and we will no longer be afraid of the infection coming into us we will be concerned with the broken and the suffering that need us to treat that infection that need us to extend gracious and healing hands towards a, a hurting world that we are charged with carrying a gospel to them that says you are loved And there is healing available for you.
2: I think on, on, in the spirit of what you just said, I mean, like I was happy to find that my love for the village was not just nostalgic. I really did. Um, you know, really did enjoy the rewatching of that in a, in a particular way, but I think the most significant and perhaps it will come out in this episode, the most significant surprise to me of these five episodes, believe it or not, ended up being signs. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I always liked signs. I rewatched signs yesterday and came away with a deep, deep, perhaps love of signs. Mm, I mean, yeah. uh, we'll, 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 we'll unpack more of where we're going with that, but I was, I was unprepared for how much it moved me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I can, I, I can say it with only slight tongue in cheek here at the top of the episode, man, I, I, to be transparent with you and no one else, Uh, I mean, I blubbered like a baby through, Mm. through the second half of the movie. Yeah. I mean, you know, just, I haven't watched it since I've had a a family. I mean, I was married uh, very shortly before it first came out or when did it come out? Oh, two. It was 2002. Yeah. Okay. No, I was not married yet when I first saw it. Uh, you know, wasn't married when I first saw it, enjoyed it as a, a single 20 something, um, as a married father now of three, man, it just really hit some notes I was unprepared for on this go round. Yeah. Um, and, and hopefully, sort of like what you and I, I think, found with the village, I do, it is my hope that people who do come to us for frivolity and hopefully some substance, um, who might have previous to Springtime for Shyamalan been, kind of cocked an eyebrow at our willingness to walk down this path. Right. I, I hope they give some of these movies a second chance. Cause I really think um, particularly these five we're talking about are, are really worth the investment, uh, both, both just the time investment of watching the movie and the emotional investment of finding something worth digging into in them. So many people think that Shyamalan burst onto the scene with six cents,
0: but he had one direct, he had two films that he directed prior to The Sixth Sense, one of which has never seen formal distribution. Praying with Anger is a very personal film he made. I have seen it, but it is hard to come by because it doesn't have any formal distribution. You basically have to dig around for it on the internet. The, uh, second film that he made and the first sort of formal, formally distributed film that he made was called Wide Awake. It was made in 98 and I was working at a video store at the time and we got a copy of it. Uh, I, was intrigued by the premise. Wide Awake is about a fourth grader who, after the death of his grandfather, goes on a search for God. I'm like, hmm, I'm very interested in this premise. And so I watched the film. I adored the movie. I still adore the movie. I rewatched it in preparation for Springtime for Shyamalan, and I, I feel very much the same level and degree of affection towards it that I did the first time around. It is sweet. It's very saccharine. I would almost even say it's kind of sentimental, and it was marketed horribly because it was marketed... It stars Dennis Leary and Rosie O'Donnell. So it was marketed Weird. as this, like... Which one's playing the fourth grader? <laughs> that's, that's a very <laughs> clever joke. So um, it was marketed as this sort of screwball comedy. There's actually very little comedic touches in the film. There's a few humorous moments here and there, but both Rosie O'Donnell and Dennis Leary are are basically playing dramatic roles, and it's a rather dramatic film, but again, with some lighthearted touches along the way, and I think it was just marketed terribly, so people going in expecting some comedic romp did not walk out with that experience, and so it, it ultimately was rather a box office failure and a critical failure, but I think it deserves some assessment. If anybody listening heard that premise and thinks, huh, I think that's an interesting film, I agree, and I think you should seek out Wide Awake and give it a chance. Um, I think you can own it on iTunes for like $3. I mean, it's, it's crazy cheap. Beside that, as a result, when Sixth Sense came out, <laughs> I was probably the only person in the audience in there, ooh, this is that guy who directed Wide Awake. I'm so excited. <laughs>
2: because you're you are correct i mean i think since it's early since the release of it and you know those few times i saw it i wouldn't have categorized it at perhaps the top of the heap for me and i couldn't quite assess why and it's interesting rewatching it this time and i texted you this but we haven't really had a chance to 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 verbalize some of this but there is so little cynicism Mm -hmm. in this movie right Right. In a way that I just think I was unprepared for and kind of it, you know what it honestly made me think of, Reed, was our conversation about, about split. Mm. Uh, because the, the thread of do you want to be well? And I think there is such a way that I, I am like this. I don't know if you're like this. There's a way in which I kind of like my media with a bit of an edge to it. Um, I like, I think I'd agree. because, because I think I, as a person can be kind of sarcastic, this is the way we cope with the harsh realities of life and yada, yada, yada. And so there's a way in which maybe I don't want to be well. And so when you show me this, is all we're, we're diving deep quick here, sure. but when you show me sort of this unvarnished picture, completely devoid of cynicism yeah. that is simply saying you can be well it's, it's almost like I don't know what to do with it. Yeah. And so I say, well, what a childish view of the world. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I get that. Um, and so, and so I think that perhaps, and this is just kind of conjecture, you know, kind of assessing why it might have previously ranked a little lower, but you know, it, it is, it is just a raw feeling movie. I mean, it Mm -hmm. is, it is so rooted in heart. Um, and just, just, it, 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 it feels more than it thinks. And I, I kind of applaud it for that in a way that maybe I hadn't appreciated beforehand. I love the way
0: you put that. Just, yeah. I want to, I want to really like anchor in on that statement. It, it definitely feels more than it thinks. And I think,
2: I think this is one of the most sensitive treatments of people of faith I've ever seen in a movie. Mm. Like mm-hmm. it just, you know, there's such a spectrum. There's like things like the exorcist yeah. on one end of a spectrum. And then there's things like facing the giants on the other end of the spectrum. Right, right. And I feel like people just struggle to get this depicted well on screen mm-hmm. because it's so it's so easy to to land in sort of the cheesy category or the oh, yeah. too too sharp-edged category. Um so I I'm really impressed with the And this is another thing Shyamalan just does well. And he does it well here and you notice things like movies like The Happening where this is not executed well and it falters which is just normal people and the character dynamics of normal people set against kind of an extraordinary backdrop yeah like right ultimately the movie doesn't really care about the aliens it doesn't it's no. really just a vehicle to enhance the drama and the dynamics of their these characters right Anyway, so yeah, that's. I mean, I've got some more, but what what are some likes, dislikes of yours?
0: So, um, just two things, real quick. So, I love the infusion of humor in this. I mean, there are mo- yes. there are moments of humor in Sixth Sense and Unbreakable, but those are largely straightforward dramatic pieces. You can make a case this is a comedy. Absolutely. I, I think almost every, almost every scene is laced with some form of either developing out of the character's relationships or out of the situation is very funny. Uh, a couple of things that I just wanted to mention. Uh, so I love the, them running around the house and, and Gibson is and, I'm insane
1: with yes. anger. <laughs> like,
0: yes. Which is great that it's Gibson because nobody does outrage better than Gibson in some of his other films. Uh, don't we know. But in this. And in real life. <laughs> <laughs> but in this, he, it's just so funny and quirky that he's this more subdued person. And then of course the confession by the actress in the pharmacy yes. and, yes. and the, when they cut back and Meryl's sitting there wearing the, Foil yeah. hat with the rest. Of so just tons of wonderful little humorous touches. And, and I think this, like The Visit, it's like I almost can't tell. If it, of course, The Visit, it was much scarier yeah, than signs. Yeah, yes. But it's a good blend of humor and suspense um, in in some really effective ways, I think. So I, so I love that. Graham telling the children uh, about the day of their birth. Uh, that mm-hmm. We talked mm-hmm. in the village about how, like, Ivy holding her hand out is one of the most powerful scenes in any Shyamalan film. Right up there with it is that whole sequence yep. where they are battening down the hatches, boarding up the home, literally. And that's the moment to comfort and reassure them that he tells them about the time of their birth. Did you know? Well, you probably wouldn't have known this. That's the story of M. Knight's children. Oh, really? Yeah. That's that's awesome. that's, that's their births I mean, that he infused sense. into the script, and I, which I think is beautiful
2: and lovely. Well, I... On a technical level, uh, in terms of st- still keeping likes, dislikes here, I feel like Signs is really a testament to his skill visually. I mean, there are a number of shots. Um, some, a lot of the comedy is born yep. purely of the shot, uh, the cut, you know, the pacing, um, of an individual frame or, or going from X shot to the next one. Um, you know, a lot of the comedy is born of that, but even shots like, or scene, sequences like the, um, the baby monitor on the car. Yeah. You know, just lots of, lots of perspective shots that really pay off in, in very strong ways visually. Um, yeah, I definitely had the birth stories on my likes list. There, there are just some fantastic. It, it's so interesting watching his progression because there's a way in which, like you just described, a lot of this is not very naturalistic, but it never feels to me. And this, in signs, it never feels what we've described in a couple of his other movies as clunky. Right. Um, the dialogue always feels pretty real. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I love some of the little moments, like in the basement, the, the creature pushing against the door. And it's this, it's this close up of Mel Gibson leaning against it. And he just simply says, I'm not ready. Oh, yeah. And it's oh, just yeah. this beautiful little moment. You know, and I think the movie's full of those. I agree. Um, I love talking about the comedy. I love the nerds were right. I wrote oh. that line down. Um, <laughs> Meryl's reaction to the found footage is, is, is classic. That's great. That's such a great moment. Yeah. It's so um, great. Yeah. Uh, clearly by, by the sound of my, how I'm, how I'm describing things, I, I enjoyed this a lot more than I anticipated. And the very first thing I wrote down, um, that I think kind of hangs heavy over this whole movie. Is, and, and I'll just read it the way I wrote it. I said, the universe has no meaning slash the universe is bursting with meaning. Mm-hmm. And I think like it's fascinating to watch this movie. And, you know, um, there, there is a peer of mine who is atheist and he'll, he'll, he'll rib me sometimes online. He, he knows my, you know, sort of religious proclivities. Um, and, and we have a mutual respect for each other, but he'll read me sometimes online about a thing just being a thing. And, and I'm as much able and willing to call just a thing is simply a thing. And yet at the same time, I can't deny the possibility that the universe is also bursting with meaning. Right. And I think, I think there's just this, and, and maybe you would disagree with this. I don't know. I do think life for the faithful is just a constant tension between those two poles.
0: And it's interesting in this conversation about signs, um, uh, because, and this, this is what I wrote down. Signs indicate two things. They either indicate direction or they indicate communication. So when we look for evidence of things, evidence of God's hand in our lives, evidence of goodness in our lives, we are trying to seek one of two things. We're either trying to hear something, communicate something about our present situation or We're looking for some sort of guidance of where we're supposed to go or what we're supposed to do. Um, I think that's even true outside of the faith perspective that it's just like signs in general either communicate direction or communication. And it's interesting to watch how this movie plays those things out because both alien presence and divine presence seems to be providing both of those things throughout the course of, of the, of the narrative, as it were. But I, I know I just hit a whole lot. Do you have any? thoughts or immediate, re- or immediate responses. I don't want to just keep rambling.
2: Um, I don't have a ton of response to those particular things, although you did bring up a juxtaposition there that I found interesting that the movie, uh, for something so so pointed as extraterrestrials and something so pointed as higher powers, the movie never puts those things in conflict with each other. And I find that really interesting.
0: Oh, yeah. You know what
2: yeah. I mean? Right. Like, it's just, it's it, the movie is not a meditation of science versus faith. It just right. isn't. It doesn't, it doesn't even care. Um, That's true. You know, in the movie, even, it, even with the, you know, what's interesting, even thinking about this right now, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't even think God is, is mentioned, you know, like, like, does anyone say, I mean, clearly the notions and habits of faith are presented, you know, prayer, sort of faithfulness, right. Uh, compassion, that sort of thing. Um, He is representative of. The, the cloth as it were anyway, I, w- where I was going with that is simply to say like the movie, the movie never questions.
0: I think you're right.
2: God, you know, yeah. it doesn't question Graham, right? I'm sorry. The movie doesn't question Graham. It says, or it doesn't question God. It says Graham may be incorrect and sort of where he's living and where his heart and spirit and brain are. Yeah. Um. Um. Anyway, I just found it interesting that the movie doesn't really set those things against each other you know, in, in a way that we so desperately sometimes are like, no, it's either this or that. Right. You know? Right. Well, and it's interesting too, that like Graham's character.
0: So Shyamalan said about this film, he said that the scariest thing in the film happens before the story begins. And that's that a genuinely good man would lose his connection with God. He sure. said, that's the scariest thing about this movie is that a man who is good would not be connected to the divine. And I thought that was interesting but then when I'm watching Graham's story play out and I, this is intentional, he's he very much says we're alone. He doesn't believe he, he he. but it's not that he's I don't think he has lost belief in God's existence. I think he's lost trust in God's goodness because of sure, what's happened sure. to him. Right. So like when he's down there in the basement with Morgan and Morgan struggling to breathe before things sort of settle in a powerful moment, he, he looks at the sky and says, I hate you. You know, he he doesn't lay down a gauntlet of if you're real or not. He said he says, I hate you, you know, and and you know that it's this this weight of you took my wife away from me. Now you're about to take my son away from me. And and it's that It's, it's he's lost trust that God is good, not necessarily belief that God is there. And I think that's something that, you know, we could do a real deep dive on the difference. Present well, in those two and, distinctions.
2: You know, if 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 you or or anyone is sensing, man, Nathan's real solemn this episode. So like, you know, signs really worked me over. Mm. You know, in in a in a in a very sort of real way, and 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 divulging minimally just of of personal things, but just this notion of, you know, how do you how do you move forward when someone deeply wrongs you? Mm. um You know. How do you move forward when you sense that the spiritual in in this in the movie's case, God, but I I would argue for myself and perhaps for other listeners out there, you know, just apply spiritual authority to that when spiritual authority feels like it has proven itself untrustworthy. Right. I, I think this movie really sort of challenged me to ask some of those questions in a way that I was unprepared for, you know, to the point that I wrote down. And I've got a mild answer for this, but, but, you know, what I wrote down was, what does forgiveness look like? You know, what does forgiveness feel like? You know, because, and, and I also wrote in, in response to the line you just quoted of the I hate you scene, like that was so powerful to me because I know this intellectually and, and I know you know this intellectually and probably many of the people who listen to us who are by mere virtue of the fact that they listen to us, smart, discerning folks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we know these things intellectually, but, I wonder what it means to assess emotionally that God can handle us telling him we hate him. Right. Right. And I would almost wager the, the proposition that he would invite that mm. because all he wants of us is just our, our ourselves, our realness, our, our, yes. the, you know, if, if the Psalms teach us anything, it's that you can, in a moment say that you hate God And, and still be in relationship with him,
1: Mm
2: -hmm. uh, and still be loved by him. Right. I think this movie was a really interesting meditation on these ideas. You know, what is, what does forgiveness look like and feel like this is why the movie doesn't care about the fact that it's aliens. It's just not really concerned with that. Right. It's concerned with saying, what do you do? How do you move forward? How do you pick up and, and, and move in wholeness when, very real tragedy has occurred to you has, has struck you, you know, especially as you sort of point out when you are quote unquote, the good, I do think it's interesting that Graham's character never, he doesn't even say why me, you know what I mean? Right. Right. I mean, he doesn't even there's, I think the character is so well materialized, so well realized that there isn't a way, there isn't the sense that Graham has lost belief in god i think he knows he's there right and he's just lost his care you know what i mean does that make sense absolutely it does Um, Absolutely, you know and 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 so in that way this movie is a very real picture of a very real relationship with god yeah you know and it and it's punctuated so strongly with that final moment between he and morgan who morgan says did someone save me
1: oh my like,
2: gosh I says I th- I think someone did yes so today we are talking about... Not the first, second, third, fourth, or fifth, but the sixth since. As Reed you like to remind us, not at all his first film, but no. unquestionably the one that put him on the map. I mean, oh, without doubt. Yeah, without doubt. And you know, I'll
0: I'll reemphasize it in brief here that like, yeah, I, I had seen his earlier film Wide Awake and adored it. You keep ignoring
2: it. Stuart Little. Are you just is that one just too scary for he, you? Like, no, a, I he, tried to make a case for us to include it in our rundown, because what is scarier than a talking rodent uh, oh in, in overalls or whatever it is he wears suits? Well, the biggest reason I skip running, it running through your house, <laughs>
0: <laughs> the biggest reason I skip it is because he only wrote the screenplay, which is, a, you know, he, he wrote it, but he didn't direct the film. It's not an M. Night. If you're re-watching this film, uh, I'm uh, I'm starting to develop a bit of a teasing reputation for occasionally watching films in black and white that were not filmed in black and white. This one I wholeheartedly recommend that you not do that with because the color red holds significance. And uh, every time in the film that the world of the dead is interacting with the world of the living, you will see somewhere in the frame the bright color red. Uh, everything from the doorknob to a ball cap that a group of children are, are all wearing. and To the uh, red dress
2: at the restaurant, to the red church door, to the red balloon at the birthday party. I wrote them all down. To the red Look sweater on Cole at the party, to the red blanket tent in Cole's room, the mom of the sick girl's dress, and the blanket Anna's under in the end. All red. What?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I thought
2: you were
0: just sort of started to started no, to break a hip hop down there. That song ended pretty quickly. <laughs> oh man! But uh for likes, this is a fantastic script. This is an absolutely stunning script. The dialogue, the structure of the story. I think I think this is just such a tight, well crafted story. And it's got a one just a sequence of absolutely breathtaking moments, uh, both in frightful and inspiring ways. I think I,
2: te- I think I texted you because I don't see it in my notes here, like rewatching it. Just this impression of what a perfect structure like it yes. just and, and, and almost even in saying that it sounds like I'm suggesting that somehow it's predictable or something like that. I'm not suggesting that it just is so tight. There's no fat uh-huh. on it. You know, the the act one and act two and act three have such clear starts and finishes yeah. without feeling like choppy, you know? Yeah, I agree. Um. So, yeah, I, I would totally agree with that Being of the children. I mean, yes, we talked about Abigail Breslin and <clears throat> signs last week. Goodness gracious. Haley Joel Osment. Like yeah, it is. It is. I I sincerely mean it makes me a little sad that he didn't go on to more. I don't know if he wanted to go on to more or anything like that. But in in isolation, like his performance in this movie is so mesmerizing and really so is. pitch perfect. I mean, there are. It's it's a shame that some of these historic scenes and movies get so lampooned, but his. His hospital bed confession of his secret is just heartbreaking. Oh my god! You know, and it's gotten kind of muddied over time, just from 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 parody. But I mean, you you can't take away the performance he delivers in this film on any level.
0: No, no, and and um and you talk about Haley Joel Osment's performance, man, it almost doesn't get more beautiful. We t- I almost want to go back into every scene like, oh, what's your favorite scene in this movie? What's your favorite scene in this movie? We talk about, uh, Ivy holding out her hand in the village. We talked last week in signs about the whole final sequence, uh, and telling the birth of the children or, you know, mm-hmm. when they're boarding up the house. In this one, it almost doesn't get more beautiful than that scene at the end with Cole and his mom talking about, you know, when, yeah. they- when he finally tells her what his secret is and both of them are delivering a powerhouse performance yeah. and it's so electric and it's so gorgeous and it's emotional and beautiful well, and just oh, and what
2: I love what, it so much. what makes that scene so much more potent though is the the level they bring to that scene although it's heightened in that particular scene just because of the content of it i mean that's threaded through each of their respective performances the whole film I mean, what, what, what they bring to bear in that scene is just the payoff of everything you've seen. I mean, I thought you were going to reference this because though I do, I I echo wholeheartedly the the car scene between Cole and his mom, but my heart just skips a beat when he puts his hands in the air in the grocery cart. Oh my gosh. I mean, this, this, this child who is so oppressed and just wants to be free of these things, you know, and is so fearful and yeah. just this beautiful, beautiful moment. And Shyamalan is smart. I alluded to this rather briefly on signs last week about, or maybe I just thought about it and, and didn't say it. I don't remember, but you know how he lets the camera hang out for a minute. Um And signs, I think about Abigail wrestling dancing at the end, how that could have easily been just one light, little tiny comic bit. And then you cut away. Well, she does it twice. I don't know if you remember that. Um, yeah. Right. Right. Well, that moment in sixth sense, when Cole puts his hands in the air, it would be so easy to just sort of let us feel the sort of lovely emotionality of that with his hands in the air and then just cut away. But what happens? The scene, the scene concludes and he puts his hands down and he just has this beautiful little glance up to his mom and they, they lock eyes. It's such a powerful scene. Wonderful, It's so wonderful.
0: But the other thing that was kind of scary that was scary to me this time around and wasn't at other times, the way the other kids treat him that's that's frightening like maybe it's because of what I said earlier about like my son is sort of reminded Cole reminded me a lot of my son but that moment when they're like hey we're gonna play Uh, a game locked in the
2: dungeon is the worst scene of that movie like that is
0: awful. awful. Oh, it's terrible. It's, that's terrible. Even if Cole wasn't seeing ghosts. Right. Like, even if Cole, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, what, yeah, yeah. like, like, the kid turns around. This is what makes me want to punch those children in the face. Yes, I said this. It makes me want to punch those kids in the face. Punch a kid. Because Cole turns around, looks at, happy birthday, Derek. You know, like, Cole's trying to be a friend, trying to be nice to these kids. And they're like, what you want to do with it? We're going to play a game called Locked in the Dungeon. I'm like, you, you jerks golly i'm Just gonna i want to strangle these
2: kids those those Ugh. those katie perry's those <laughs> <laughs> those britney spears
1: Ugh. Ugh. <laughs>
2: as we wind up springtime for chanelon uh in the way that i think it does some people does it bother you uh Shyamalan's increasing role in his films oh like the cameo
0: stuff yeah yeah um so I'll tell you where it started to bother me was actually signs. Yeah, I think I
2: think, pretty, and the only it's reason it, pretty heavy in there.
0: Yeah, and I think the only reason it bothered me there is because it took me out of the film. Like sure. at that point, I knew it. It doesn't bother me at all. That's not a cameo. Yeah, exactly. That's a part. Right. Um, it doesn't bother me at all in the Sixth Sense. Sure. Didn't sure. bother me in Unbreakable because it was such a low key sort of insertion. When's it happened in Unbreakable? Uh, in Unbreakable, he's the drug dealer at the stadium. Uh, oh, right, so he, right, and, right. and, uh, David Dunn knew that he was a drug dealer, but when he patted him down, he didn't find anything on him. I will tell you the only cameo and it's not a cameo. It's again, it's part. The only part that I would say like, Hey man, you, you, I disagree with him. Including him in this is including himself as the writer in yeah. uh, lady in the water yeah. because it feels too self aggrandizing. Right. And right. that's, that's why I'm bothered by it. Him being any other part in Lady in the Water, I don't think I would have minded that much. Again, it might have taken me out of things,
2: but well, I mean, if he being... was the lady, you are going to have to change the title a little bit, or you that's know, true. Some the <laughs> oh, thing. the jokes that come to my head. So, um, this the, the the beautiful yet sad scene, as so many of them in this movie are, when when Malcolm is withdrawing his aid from Cole. Oh, and man. Cole scooches the penny back across the table and he just says some magic is real. Yes. And um yes. my gosh. What an like I receive that on a technical level and on an intellectual level as what a beautiful piece of script writing. I receive that as a human as what an indictment of the adult world. Oh man, couldn't agree more. You know, like because is 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 this a heightened movie like so many are? Yes would i be hard pressed to believe that my child or a child in my life is seeing dead people and needs to learn how to actually offer them aid yeah that'd be a stretch but are there actual real moments when my adult frame of the world gets gets sort of poked and prodded by a child's yeah. willingness to go places imaginatively that i'm more quick to abandon these days and I need Mm -hmm. to pay attention. Yes, absolutely. I don't know. I just, I was, I was really impressed by that moment and chastened by it, you know? Yes. We didn't pre-brief this moment, uh, but
0: your inclusion of the, just the, the indictment of the adult world is just firing all my cylinders because I think that's something that's, this bleeds into the second theme that I had, but you articulated it far better than I'm about to just that, Perception is such a huge element of what's going on. I wrote down the two words. I wrote down communication and I wrote down perception. So before I unpack this for a moment, what I did write down is when he says the line, they only see what they want to see. I wrote down, don't we all? Mm. And I think that that's another thing you just articulated, the indictment of the adult world. I'm sitting here like in my arrogance at 36 years old, in my arrogance at how much I think I understand. yet. When I was a teenager and when I was a 20-something, I did the same thing. Like, I understand so many things about the world. I understand this and I understand that. What people need to do is this. What people need to do is that. They need to, you know, behave this way. They need to do this thing. They need to do that thing. And then I, at 36, would look back at my teenage and 20-year-old self, and I wonder if I would even get along with that person. Sure. I wonder if I would even have much in common with their their value set, their value system. I, I'm... I was a believer. I've been a believer for much of my life, but I'm sitting here thinking, like, wow, the the limitations of our own perception. Like the fact that Malcolm is navigating through all this. He hears as Cole's looking right at him. I see dead people. They don't know they're dead. They're walking around like regular people. They only see what they want to see. The one question that never strikes Malcolm's mind is, could he be talking about me? Right. There's no way he's talking. Me. Right. There's no way he's talking about me. Which is why that revelation at the end. Hit so hard and hit me so hard the first time I saw the film because I was like, Oh my gosh. It never would have even entered into his mind that maybe this would be something that, that applied to him. And you talk about, and I, th- I think it's right. The, the sort of the indictment of the adult world. I think it's also just an indictment of believing you understand everything, an indictment yeah. of believing you've got everything figured out and that your perception of things, your perception of the world, is the gridlock only possible perception that exists and that you have figured everything out in this sort of very Stay concise curious. compartmentalized way. Stay curious. Stay curious. So I'm going to mention Matthew chapter 18 verses two through four is talking about Jesus. He says he called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And thinking about how we as adults are so convinced that we have everything ordered, everything put together. We dismiss children. We dismiss how they think. We dismiss what they think about. We dismiss their perception of the world. And we do so at our peril. Because our king has told us that unless you become like them, you're missing out the kingdom of heaven entirely. And what is the kingdom of heaven as expressed in some of our favorite writings, but the grandest fairy tale, the grandest, you know, love story epic kind of thing and Cole sliding the penny across and reminding each and every one of us who have got our head buried in the sand that some magic is real, that sure. there are some that there are some things that are still worth feeling wondrous about and sure. feeling hopeful and feeling perhaps a bit magical about. I think that there's something that we ourselves we we just trust what we can see. We trust what we can feel, but as his, as Cole observed to Malcolm, they see what they want to see. Sure. And 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 we are at limit of that. And unless we are willing to sort of break beyond our gridlocked perceptions of things and accept and listen attentively to the perceptions of other people, then we're going to be in real trouble. We do so at our own demise at times. I had said, as a sort of final thought on my whole rant here, I had said before, I said, you know, an open mind, and I think I've said it on this show, that an open mind just basically is a substitute for having very few convictions. What we need is not necessarily an open mind, but an open heart and an attentive mind, a mind that is paying attention to those around us and is, as you've put it several times now, stay staying curious about what, happens beyond our own experiences and about what is taking place in the world around us that would inform something of of where we are and of what we're going through. Um, so yeah, I think this film has a lot to say about that, about the need to listen, about the need to break out of our own perceptions and possibly even to fill ourselves with some childlike wonder.
2: Well, it's funny, you, you even nodding that direction actually makes me think of the Shyamalan movie we covered last week and how it ends. I don't know if you remember the signs when Graham walks out of the bedroom with his clerical collar on once more. Do you remember the audio cue that happens? No, what is It's, it's the kids laughing and playing downstairs. Mm. It's this really lovely, you know, restoration of wonder, if you will. Yes. That some magic is real and and we can, we can see it and we can partake of it and we can participate in it. Man, I cannot and we think. We can see dead people. <laughs> I cannot think of a better button on
0: why I love the work of M. Night Shyamalan, except that he, probably more so than many other filmmakers, is continually telling us in different ways. Sometimes ways that frighten us. Sometimes ways that thrill us. Sometimes ways that move us. Sometimes ways that frustrate us. But is continually telling us some magic is real, and. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I don't think he'll ever listen to this, but, you know, on the off chance he has, I, I, I love him for it. I love him as a filmmaker for it, for, for telling us in his little way that some magic is real. And, uh, and I, I appreciate that. And I appreciate springtime for Shyamalan <laughs> so, so much. So, um, uh, so please check out social media to find out where we're going to be going next. And, uh, as always, Nathan, thank you so much for having this conversation with me and for suggesting this series. This has been a blast.
2: Yes, it's been a load of fun. Good to see you and talk to you and be heard by all of y'all. Catch you later, guys. See you next week. Bye.
0: to be here with you. We have been Clearly. spending a lot of time recently at, uh you know, sitting in the springtime for Shyamalan, wonderful goodness yeah, fun. and amazingness. Oh my That gosh, was a very fun great. time.
2: Hey, you've got a survey thing, right? You've
0: got like some fun... Feedback. I do. I do. So um, listeners uh, at the very beginning of springtime for Shyamalan uh, filled out a little survey that we had already recorded all the episodes. So we, we didn't have a chance to tag in with what the results were. But Shh,
2: don't give away the magic. Reed. Don't give away the magic.
0: So I had I had asked five simple little questions just to kind of get a feel for how people were feeling about it. We're going to run through those right now for the, for those of you as a kind of a debrief of Springtime for Shyamalan. This is, uh, this is the listener selected, listener voted results of our Springtime for Shyamalan official Fear of God survey. So question Ooh, number one was, was a long title. Uh, I know, right? <laughs> what do you consider M. Night Shyamalan's best film to be? So, um, it was actually much closer race than I thought it was going to really? be. Really? Yeah. Second place is actually.
2: Was just creeping up there. <laughs> yes, exactly.
0: Exactly. Like that little writer he is. <laughs> oh man. The, the second and third place each only received one vote less than the winner. So it was a really like tight, tight race. The official winner was, of course, the sixth sense, but. I just have to comment because it was so close that Unbreakable and Signs were almost neck and neck for it. That uh, that they they all received a uh, somehow of I would have
2: thought the happening would have proven itself the dark horse we all know it is and overtaken all of them. I mean, just yeah, got zero votes. Cheese and crackers, cheese and crackers. Come on! All right, what's our number two? Oh well. <laughs> um, so the second question posed in our springtime for Shyamalan, Fear of God uh, Shyamalan themed questionnaire and survey to our listeners. Um, was what is Shemalan's most underrated film? And we like ties or, or close close runnings here at this. At Our the listeners Fear of God. do evidently. You know, it's kind of that whole first is last, last is first, first among equals kind of idea. So um, <laughs> the most the voted on most underrated Shemalan film was a tie between Signs and the Village, mm. which is interesting. I, would, I don't know that I would personally say signs is underrated. I think f- in my observation, most folks rate signs. You know what I mean? Like it's considered hmm. like when you say are in a conversation about Shyamalan movies, Six Sense, Unbreakable Signs, you know, those movies like those are the ones I would right. associate right, right, people right. considering. I'm going right. to, I'm going to, I'm going to side with the village on this one because if it's underrated, I do think that's a very underrated movie, but Hey, the people have spoken and it's a tie.
1: <laughs> and signs in the village.
2: So who,
0: who am I? <laughs> <laughs> well, and I will briefly cite your own experience of how, at the very beginning of springtime for Shyamalan, you said that you thought the village was a, or that you thought the Sixth Sense and Unbreakable were great movies, and the Signs was only a good movie. And then after you rewatched it, you you gained a lot well, of
1: affection. Not,
2: for yeah, it. yeah, no, no, no. I, I'm not trying to imply I don't think they're good movies. I'm just saying in terms of when I think of the word underrated, I think like, what do people. Yeah, whatever. You, you're just trying to feed my words back to me. No <laughs> way.
1: What, oh, what you uh, okay. described
2: me as saying feels different than what I'm trying to say, but I'm not going to articulate oh, it well, oh. so we'll just move on to number three. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so number three was the one I had the most fun with, and that was just, we want to imagine if M. Night Shyamalan was only a screenwriter, hashtag Stuart Little, if he was only a screenwriter, <laughs> which of these alternate reality versions of his films would you most want to see? So I took each of his films and I selected an alternate director uh who would maybe have helmed that film. Uh we had a couple of fun little options. It's an impre- sort of impressively
2: imaginative question, Riri. I give you props. I well I
0: I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I uh I really enjoyed coming up with those. So uh it was a runaway we had a runaway favorite, but I'm gonna name the top three uh because I asked our listeners to select three. So coming in at number three would be people who want to see the Cohen brothers tackle split, which I think would wow. be really be... interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The Cohen brothers tackling split. I just, I just, you know, uh, James McAvoy running around, don't you know, you know, like all these, <laughs> 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 um, but the, uh, and then, uh, coming in second place which i i really would I, I really would like to see this movie like i i wish in some alternate universe that this movie existed it might, because this is it the only one in of an
2: alternate universe
0: that's possible um cuz this is the only one of these choices that i actually think would be an improvement on the film um and that is uh, people wanted to see what would have happened to the happening had david fincher directed it so um, wow. that would have been that would have been kind of interesting. David Fincher's The Happening. It probably would have been first, you know, a
2: little darker. First rule of The Happening is don't talk about The Happening.
0: <laughs> but, you know, and I kind of expected this. The runaway favorite people would have loved to have seen Christopher Nolan's Unbreakable. So that was the uh, that was the number one huh. pick.
2: Well, see, yeah, what's interesting to me about that is in some ways, Unbreakable is the proto Nolan superhero movie. Right? I mean. Yeah. In, yeah. Certain, in, a, in, a, in a certain regard. I wouldn't disagree with that. All right. Well, the fourth on our five question, Springtime for Shyamalan, Fear of God listener survey <laughs> for 2017, <laughs> springtime, um, is which Shyamalan film would you be willing to give a second or possibly first chance? Which Shyamalan film would you be willing to give a second chance to? And the answer, as voted on by our listeners, was Lady in the Water. Yep. that
0: was. But, I the, mean, what and, were that, and that one was not a close race. Like, that was... Most people voted Did you, Lady in the Water. I, it's been a while since I looked at the survey. Were all of his movies listed as options? Every single one of them. Yeah. Mm. Every single one of them. Um, but again, the question's primarily based around, like, hey, second, give it a second chance... I said possibly first because some people may have just skipped movies entirely. But, yeah, which movie would you be willing to give a second chance? Most people picked uh, Lady in the Water. Although, second place with that, not it wasn't a close race, but second place was After Earth. Um, Because a lot of people, I think, had just checked out on Shyamalan by then. And people were like, I'd be willing to go and and see what, what After Earth was all about. But I would definitely say that even though we've already talked at length about how it has its problems, Lady in the Water... Deserves a, a reassessing. It doesn't mean that you're going to walk away thinking it's a great film, but you're going to walk away, I think, latching on to things that are more than you expected it to. But our listeners got it right is what I'm saying. Oh, smart, oh, oh. So there, was a, there was
2: a right answer to that one. Um, <laughs> the survey was about us, not you. Um, so, um. Yes, read. Bring yeah, so the, What was the last, uh, last s- entry on this little survey?
0: So the, the final, the final question, and it's fitting for what our episode is today for us returning to this. I said, choose a genre that you would like to see given the M. Night Shyamalan treatment. Um, uh, you know, westerns, political thrillers, romantic comedies, or, you know, something else. And, uh, hands down, our listeners want to see him tackle a good old fashioned monster movie, like a vampire or a werewolf or, uh, you know, a creature feature or something. They want to see him tackle a straightforward monster film. And I think, he would do a really, really good job with that. it's not time for us to to dive into our main episode, but given that, I thought it was appropriate that that was the yes, that was the last answer well
2: hey, us. you know before before we bid farewell to our friend M Knight, do you know what the M stands for? Should you just make it up? No, it's Minaj oh. Like, that makes sense. <laughs>
0: you didn't know I would have so, that answer. So,
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it makes perfect sense that you would have that answer. You are answer man. <laughs> yeah, it's it's you
0: know, it's Minaj. Knight is uh, Knight is not what he was christened with. He picked that. Like he selected Knight. He specifically chose Knight to be a part of his name. And it's interesting. Like if you were to Google search just the word Knight, I think the top entry is like that novel by Ellie Visel. Um, and then I can't remember what the second option is, but I think the third or fourth option is M. Night Shyamalan. If you just Google the right. word "night," like he's synonymous. Surely that. one
2: of them is opposite of day.
0: <laughs> you would think. No, everybody knows what that right. is. Oh, oh, be
2: Googling oh, right? Well, you know, <laughs> these days. But yes, but before we bid our good friend Minaj Night Shyamalan a fond <laughs> farewell, until uh, and actually this is this is appropriate. read. we have not been able on the show yet to comment yet on this new wonderful announcement come February um, 2019 man, when we get the completion of this trilogy with Unbreakable and then Split as of two months ago, three months ago, and now culminating in the appropriately lovingly titled Glass what a, oh, I cannot wait. What a perfect... Ugh. That's really perfect. Hey, I don't know if you saw this. I think it just hit uh, a few minutes before you and I haven't even had a chance to pre-brief it. Did you see they'd released a tagline for the film already? Oh, no, I didn't. Yeah. Uh, in real time. What is yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. It was... um So, of course, the movie's title is Glass, and the tagline is, People in his house shouldn't throw stones. You... so so listeners wait 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 wait. there was another one there's another one it's two posters it's two posters oh my god and the other one just says half full
0: (laughs) you're okay okay I don't know which I don't know which I despise more. The the fact that you had me actually thinking they'd released a tagline for the film in my ignorance, or or the fact that your selections were that uproariously ridiculous. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. You're making me want
2: to split. Oh man. That was beautiful. That, I just like that was real time on air. Got you. That's awesome.
0: Your com- your commitment to that because <laughs> listeners don't know that I can see your face and I know how good of a poker face you had building
2: up to that. Like, oh, I wasn't your, looking your at your you. I knew. I had to look at my. Uh, I had to look at my
1: notes to make sure I wasn't looking at you or I would have cracked up.
0: That is. Oh man, that was. Yeah, that was. That was pretty funny.